Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Dean Radin, who is Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Associate Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and Chairman of the biotech company Cognigenics. He earned an MS in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Psychology from the University of Illinois, and in 2022, he was awarded an Honorary DSC from the Swami Vivekananda University in Bangalore, India, which is an institution of higher learning accredited by the Indian government and specializing in yoga practice and research. Before joining the IONS research staff in 2001, Dean worked at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, I think in the Kessler unit, and the SRI International. He's given over 650 talks and interviews worldwide, an amazing figure. And he's the author and co-author of some 300 scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, nine books, four of which have been translated into 15 foreign languages. His principal books are The Conscious Universe, which was awarded the Scientific and Medical Network Book Prize in 1997, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and most recently, Real Magic um, in 2018. So, Dean, it's very nice to have you on Imaginal Inspirations. And I'm going to ask you initially about uh, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Yeah, I've been asked this question many times. So I've thought about it quite a bit, and I can't think of any single event that that launched me in this direction. I can think of a, a constellation of things that probably shaped me in some way, and that includes reading a huge amount of science fiction and fairy tales as a youth, becoming attracted to science and technology very early on, and probably growing up in an artistic family where my mother was doing yoga for as, as soon as I was aware of anybody doing anything. My father was a sculptor, despite having five university degrees. And my brother, for many years, now retired, but was a, a dentist as his profession, but also spent 30 years teaching drama in the local high school. And in my own case, up until college, I was on a career track as a violinist, concert violinist. So the idea of up until about college that I would become a scientist in any domain was not even part of what I was thinking about or anyone else was thinking about because I was talented on the violin. So well, where did the interest in psychic phenomena come from? It's combined with all of everything I just said. So interesting. And do, do you, before we move on, do you, do you have a favorite piece on, on the violin? I like the Sibelius Violin Concerto. Ah, it's an extraordinary piece. Yeah, and the Beethoven is also uh, particularly fun. So at one point, uh, about the the best that I was able to do was the the Paganini Caprices. Wow. Which which are quite challenging, and I really could not play all of them very well, but I could play some of them pretty well. 
And as as you were you know, developing in your, your sort of academic work, was there a particular uh, influential mentor or teacher who helped you on the way? Probably mostly in graduate school. There was a professor of mathematics who I don't even remember how we learned our our mutual interests, but at some point something about remote viewing came up and he expressed an interest, and so we started doing informal experiments on, on remote viewing, and we're getting some interesting results on it. So through him, I was introduced to a couple of other professors who also had more or less secret interests. So as a graduate student, I, I started dabbling in these sorts of things. And as a result, eventually discovered that there were journals, that there were organizations, that were other people out there doing it. And then I discovered in the library stacks at the University of Illinois, way down in like the fifth sub-basement, there was a huge section on parapsychology, like all of the books and journals that you would expect to find in a really good library. And I, I spent a fair amount of time there just exploring the idea that a lot of people for a long time have been spending serious effort looking at these kinds of phenomena. Goodness, was that a bequest or um, has somebody been ordering them on the sort of main staff? Or maybe your, your, your professors have been ordering them. No, they, they were around for quite a long time. Some of the books were quite old. So I don't know who started the collections. Occasionally you see a, a book plate where a book had been contributed, but I don't know where all the journals came from. It looks like somebody somewhere along the line had been subscribing to all of the major journals and they hadn't all of them. Very interesting. And um, tell us a bit about Bob Morris, because I think you worked with him at the University of Edinburgh. Yes, Bob. Bob was uh, the Kessler chair uh, when I was there in 1993. Uh, and I had known Bob before from uh, meetings of the Parapsychological Association. He was really a spectacular person and choice for that job, because I remember at one point he said that the part of his the way that he viewed what his, his job was, was to, uh, to decelerate the uh, anxiety among academics in the UK. And the way that he did that was to speak at every psychology department at every university in the UK, some 200. And by Crazy. doing that, he provided a, the, a human face for people interested in this that was very conservative and not threatening. And as a strategy, then, it was a spectacular success, as, as we see now through, I don't know, uh, 80, perhaps, PhDs that have come out of the Kessler unit. So that's unique in the world. Yes, I, rem I remember him well, and you're absolutely right. He, he had that uh, very tactful way of, of putting these things across in a sort of non-threatening non way. Yeah. So coming on to books that have been important to you, um, I imagine there's, there's more than a few, but maybe you could pick out two or three um, that have had an effect on, or influence on your thinking. So the first book I read that actually had to do with parapsychology as a, an experimental discipline was, was called uh, ESP, A Scientific Investigation uh, by Mark Hansel which was a skeptical book. Ah, yes, I know the book. Yes. Yeah, and so I remember reading that and and I could you immediately tell that this is a skeptic who's saying why we shouldn't believe any of this. But what really caught my eye was, oh, 
there are people actually doing experiments on this. And, and while he has, a, he has his own opinion about it, it, it actually drew me into the literature. That was the first book I read that suggested anybody had been doing any kind of science here. So it encouraged me to go look at the, the science. I discovered Rhine, among other people. Uh, and I was way more impressed by what the researchers were saying than by what Mark Ansel was saying. That it, he basically was being a debunker of everything, and I just didn't buy it. No, absolutely. And often it's the debunking is really on metaphysical grounds that you know, these things are impossible. So they must they must be fraudulent or they must be poor experimental design. Yeah. I mean, his his entire approach was to say, well, maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was this other thing. But when you do that again and again and again for every piece of evidence that begins to lose its credibility and it especially does so when you go look at the original studies that are being criticized and you realize that he's been leaving out a lot of additional details. So rather than making me more skeptical about these phenomena, it actually, it piqued my interest to the point where I actually went back to the original studies and started reading them. Very interesting. And uh, when I was doing my own research for my initial book, one of the books that impressed me a lot was um, C.D. Broad, um, lectures on psychical research i'm yep. sure that's a book that uh, has crossed your radar at, at some point yeah and so the, i i use that actually uh one of his famous papers where he's talking about the basic limiting principles of science and i've noticed that for academics who don't really know the literature very well they often cite that article and say why we can dismiss psychic phenomena because it violates the basic limiting principles of science. And they refer to Broad's arguments, but they clearly didn't read the rest of that article because the whole point of what he was saying is if these are the basic limiting principles of science, given that the evidence for psychic phenomena is pretty darn good, something is wrong about the basic limiting principles, but that's not the way the citation is being used. So I, I use this, as I call it, a, a delicious irony, arguments of skeptics who are not paying attention to what the articles actually say. No, very interesting. And he had this phrase which uh, struck me when I first read it, but antecedent probability, the antecedent probability of something being, being able to happen or not. And what it, what it really amounts to is simply, you know, what are your assumptions about the nature of reality? Yep. And if they're very materialistic, then the antecedent probability is going to be zero of anything like this happening. So, yeah. but it's a, bit, a little bit the same point you're making, I think. Oh, no, it's exactly the same. And in fact, you see this again today uh, in people who are proposing that Bayesian statistics would be more suitable. And so in the Bayesian statistics, you have to say what your priors are, your prior beliefs. And as to your prior beliefs, some skeptics have admitted is something like 10 to the minus 40th. Okay. Like it's as close to zero as you can get. And from yes. a Bayesian perspective, if you start with a very close to zero prior probability, no amount of evidence, like there is simply not amount evidence in the universe that would convince you of anything otherwise. No, that, nothing would stack ends, up. And, and that also is a way of then saying that you, you may declare that you're open-minded about this, but you're absolutely not. And what about... Um... Can you can you think of a couple of key moments of insight during your work, during your research on consciousness and the nature of reality? I guess one part of it was uh, in 1970 when I was, I think I was uh, either a freshman or a sophomore in college, uh, the TM program was 
was on campus. And so I learned how to do TM type meditation. And I very quickly started to run into phenomena that I didn't know what to do with. And at that point, the people who were the so-called checkers, who you would go after meditating a while and describe what's happening, they had no idea what was going on because they had started meditating one week before I did. Okay. So uh, that that was kind of a, a, a mind opener for me to show that a fairly simple mantra meditation could produce pretty serious changes mentally that, that would change your perception of reality. So that was an experiential thing. At the time, you could get any psychedelic you can imagine easily. And I, get, I, didn't, I never took any because I can tell from my friends who were taking it, this was not a good thing to do unless you were, you were doing it very carefully. And I, I just was never drawn to it. So I didn't take that route. But meditation, I felt, was, uh, was safe enough. And even then, I was experiencing things that, I, uh, that were uncomfortable, actually. They were too fast, too much too fast. Yes, yeah, so you're on the fast track. Oddly enough, my first introduction to TM was by Pete Russell. Oh. And, he, and he was giving a, a lecture at the Quaker um, meeting house in Cambridge. And I was one of three people in the audience. And um, so, um, you know, obviously, we, we know each other very well, and as you yeah. do. I also want to mention one other experience I had, which was unusual, I guess. And this may have been related to part of learning how to do meditation. So it, it was 1972, and I know that. I know exactly the date, and I know exactly the time, because I was born on Leap Day. And so I, I spend special attention whenever I have a real birthday. So 1972 was my fifth birthday, and uh, I was walking to a very early morning class. It's it's 7.30, and I was born on February 29th, 1952, at 7.32 a.m., and this was very, very close then to like exact time of, of birth. It was 7.30, 7.35, something like that. I was walking past the chapel at the University of Massachusetts, which is where I went to, to the school, uh, being February it was extremely cold. It wasn't snowing, but it was one of those fogs that had a certain density to the fog. So you, you couldn't see very far in it, but I knew I was walking past the chapel and in the chapel was where the orchestra would practice. And so I was there every day because I was the concertmaster of the orchestra at the time. And I remember thinking as I was walking past the chapel, because you, you, build, you'd come upon buildings without seeing them in advance because the fog was so dense that you could only see like the next 30 feet. So I saw the chapel and I remember thinking at that time, I need to remember this. Like I, I want to lock into, into my memory this moment because it's the chapel and it's a strange chilly day and it's my birthday and all the rest. And as soon as I thought that up, so ah. it's, it's, it sounds, and, and by that, I mean that, it felt as though everything up to my life at that point, I had been dreaming. Like it was like, I wasn't completely awake yet. At that moment I woke up and it, it was such a strange feeling because suddenly it's as, it's as though you were wearing blinders and suddenly the blinders were taken away and it didn't go away. So this wasn't a momentary effect. It's, it stayed, it stays to this day. And since then, uh, that was the most dramatic event like that, that I've experienced, but I've had maybe, three or four more minor things like that, where you feel, oh, 
everything before that was sleeping. Now I'm awake finally. Okay. So stages like that, but that was, that was unexpected and quite dramatic at the time. So I felt, well, maybe this is about meditation. I don't know what this is, but it, it did something. Yes, that's so, absolutely fascinating. And, but I, we're always in this process, I think, of, of waking up um, and, and having new realizations, um, but that not usually as, in, as a dramatic a fashion as you've described. Yeah, it was like, it was like a step function. Like mm. Everything before was sleeping, now I'm awake. Of course, if that happens then repeatedly, everything is a dream. So someday I hope maybe I'll get to the point where I say, oh, okay, now, now I know that I'm awake maybe <laughs> okay yes yes well you'll only know in retrospect as it were yeah only in retrospect and then tell us about that extraordinary synchronicity involving your office because i think that's really a remarkable yeah incident this was back in uh, 2000 when i had just left interval research which was paul allen's laboratory for inventing the future of the internet and paul allen was the co-founder of microsoft so I worked there for two years and then uh, my contract there ran out. And with uh, several people from Interval, we decided to start a new nonprofit that we called the Boundary Institute to study the boundaries between mind and matter. So this was in the, right in the middle of the, the dot-com craze. And it was hard to find uh, office space in and around Silicon Valley. So we were starting to go out to the periphery and we found a place in Los Altos, which is in Silicon Valley, but sort of the, the suburb. And it was an office park that had a wide variety of professional services of all kinds. So we found a spot and we, we rented that. And for a, a number of months, I was the only one in there because I was setting it up and we didn't have that much money yet. And so we had pretty uh, five or six rooms and all of them were empty except my office. My office was abutting the wall of the people next door. I, I was uh, lived close enough to be able to walk to work, and I was walked a certain way that bypassed everyone else. So I was able to go immediately right to our office. So one day I decided I think I'll walk a different way. I started walking to see who our neighbors were in this office complex, and it was real estates and dentists and things like that. And then I, I walked past a place that said SciQuest Inc. I thought, oh, that's a funny coincidence because Psi was spelled P-S-I, Psi, and then Quest, capital Q. I thought, well, that, that must be like Personnel Services Incorporated or something like that. And uh, one of these days, I'll introduce myself and just find out what they do. And then as I walk around the corner and I'm heading towards our office, I notice that there's right next to us, our neighbor is SciQuest Labs. And so now I'm much more interested because what are what is personnel services doing in the laboratory? And it's right next to us. So I look in the door and it has mini blinds and you can't really see very well in there, but there's no one in there. There's like, there's a reception area, but there's no one there. So every day over the next month or so, I, I walked that way so I could see if someone was in there and wanted to introduce myself and find out what 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 are you doing here? What kind of laboratory is this? to say nothing of the coincidence of having the word Psy, PsyQuest, because ours was, we had a label Boundary Institute, which didn't say what we were doing. No, sure. And virtually none of my colleagues and friends knew that we were there. We, we weren't telling people that we were creating this nonprofit because we didn't want people dropping in unexpectedly. So we were as secret as, as you can be. 
And finally, one day I walked past and the mini blinds are a little bit open and I could see there's somebody in the reception area. So I knock on the door, a man comes, opens the door. And I, what I say immediately is, uh, hello, uh, I'm Dean Radin, your neighbor. And the man who's standing there just has a shocked expression on his face yes. and, and was, was sort of stunned. He was just standing there and not doing anything. And I thought, well, this is awkward because he he doesn't look right. He he looks stunned. Well, why would you look stunned? Because somebody's at the at the door. Finally, it turns out that he explains what is going on and why he was so stunned. Because he had spent the prior 24 hours trying to manifest me. And the, the story then is that he was doing a dream yoga technique where you spend three hours awake intending for a certain outcome. And then you go three hours of sleep and you do this over a 24 hour cycle and it doesn't take long before you get into a very weird altered state, which is the point. So he was trying to manifest me because he was doing Psy research like we were doing with his company, PsyQuest, which is a business for psychic research business and the laboratory was trying to develop products that he would eventually sell. And to help raise funds, he wanted me to be on his board of directors but he had no idea where I was. I mean, even at that point, very few people knew I even lived in Silicon Valley. And he was doing this manifestation technique to try to get in contact with me. But he had no idea that I was gonna open the door one day and be there, which is why he was so shocked. So then I became shocked too, because I felt that I had free will, but apparently not as free as I thought because I showed up uh, more or less at his bidding except it wasn't completely at his bidding because after all, we needed an office and uh, you know, wanted to find out who is this person? What is, what is the synchronicity? So that's, that's part of the strangeness. The second part is I explained what we were doing and what, what our plans were. And of course he was very excited about that. And I said, well, I've been in my office the last month and a half or so drawing on a whiteboard on our wall about a laboratory setup that I wanted to create which involved a certain kind of shielded room and a certain reclining chair and various kinds of equipment. And his eyes started bugging out and said, well, do you want to see what I have in my laboratory? Yes. Go corner into a room, which is adjacent to the wall where my office was, which has the shielded room and the special chair and the physiology equipment and everything that I was drawing on the board on my wall. So was I doing remote viewing on the other side of the wall? Was I manifesting what I needed but didn't have yet? This was yet another crazy synchronicity. The, what's even as interesting as, as these multiple synchronicities or multiple quasi-gravitational pulls of our intentions is that we actually never started working together. It's, a, it's almost as though the this was so strange that we didn't know what to do with it. So in retrospect, it would have made a lot of sense if we actually did collaborate because he had all the equipment already and we didn't have anything yet in our offices. So as I think back on this now, why, well, why didn't we do anything? Why, do, why didn't we collaborate? Well, I guess a case could be made that uh, he was doing it as a business, as a for-profit business, mm. and we were nonprofit. And it wasn't clear from an organizational perspective how to do this. And probably more importantly, we weren't at the stage yet where we thought we could make something that was reliable enough to be sold as a product. 
we, we could come up with schemes, but not something that would sustain investors, which is what he wanted. Yes, so quite. Maybe well, it, that I mean, the whole episode is like a kind of cosmic joke, isn't it? If you're trying to have some fun, you know, by stunning and surprising people, then, then what you've described would, would fit the bill. It would. Yeah, it would. And, and also, it kind of suggests also in retrospect that if you want to create something that would be useful in a pragmatic sense so that you can get investors to pay for it, what it amounts to is something like the power of affirmations, the power of intention really does work. But it works a whole lot better if you have two people who are, are kind of revolving around each other and working on similar things. And now in his case, he was using a dream yoga technique, which pushes hard on an altered state of consciousness to have for the affirmation. In my case, I was spending a couple hours a day at least thinking about and drawing what I wanted. But drawing, of course, as, as I point out in my book on magic, drawing has two meanings. One is you make a sketch of what you want. The other yes. one is you pull it towards you. And what was happening here very much was like a gravitational pull. There are two poles going on very closely linked to each other, as we learned later, that actually caused us to be in proximity to each other, which is certainly a synchronicity, but it, it suggests more of a metaphor of something like affirmations and intention create a pull that pulls reality into together somehow. Yes, it's almost like a magnet. Yeah. I've, I've heard that used before. Anyway, Dean, thank you very much for, for that. Um, my next question is, is really related to how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live. Um, because obviously, if you understand consciousness in a particular way, it's going to have implications for how you, how you think you should lead your life. Well, I can't say that I spent a lot of conscious effort uh, doing that. But as I look back on my career, I've managed to be paid as a scientist to do research where there is no career and no jobs. Right. Yes. And so I must have been doing something right. And I think even before I got involved in all this, very often I would I'd go to a concert or I'd do something where I was thinking, oh, I want to do that. And typically within a year, I was doing that, including things like, I, I, think, I think I'd like to be the concert master of that orchestra. Next year, I was concert master of the orchestra. But this happened repeatedly in many, many different ways. So part of it was simply a focus of this is what I want. Part of it was also a lot of hard work that went behind it. So it doesn't happen all by itself, but it's as though the want probabilistically uh, excites the world to allow that possibility to open, but then you have to walk through it, right? It's, it's a combination of action on many different levels in order to make something occur. But it's happened so often that I figure that w whatever I'm doing somewhat conscious, but usually it's the way that something unfolds is not conscious, but it, but it no, happens you anyway. You have to leave the means to um, the universe, in inverted commas, yeah. And then, yeah. And then you, you see, see how it works. Yeah. You're, basically, I think what, what may happen here is that strong, I would say, additionally realistic affirmations open a door. But you still have to do something to go through the door. You're not going to magically be teleported in there. Occasionally, something like that can still happen because there are all kinds of probabilities are possible out there. Uh, but I think it's more that you 
you have a path in front of you and there are various paths that can be easier or less easy and you can manipulate that in some way through through your will yes i, I think mean, even the, i think some of the new thought thinkers of 100 years ago like thomas Troward, they, they they understood this you know when they were starting to talk about the law of attraction but in a, in, in relation to creativity and intent yes i think that's what you've so, been talking about when i when i put my science hat on i'm thinking this is crazy it's crazy to think that way because the the physical world out there does have certain regularities and laws and you you can't override them simply by wishing it so but when i take that that hat off and i look back at both my career and other things that have happened throughout my life i'm thinking well it looks like something like that is happening so they're they're kind of both true at the same time from a scientific perspective and of course i was trained in materialism like every other scientist still are trained there's enormous amount to be said in its favor because it works really well but as i now say it doesn't work really well for everything in which case materialism is a subset of a larger and more comprehensive philosophy that we have various names for it so my my, my current working favorite is dual aspect monism but that's going to change because something else will come along probably but it it provides a very different way of thinking about how reality unfolds than materialism does it provides a nexus between the inner and the outer i think obviously there's a first person and third person perspective and and what you've been saying is is sort of building a bridge if you like between those two that's right right one of the things i want to add in here is one of the books that was important to me which was the book by Ram Dass called Be Here Now. Ah, so yes. I had not read anything about eastern philosophy at that point but something about what he wrote in that book really resonated with me for for reasons I don't know I was prepared in some way to to embrace those kinds of ideas but that was really influential for me. Yes, thank you. And do you have a favorite quote or quotes that you call to mind uh from uh Terence McKenna? as the as the bonfires of knowledge grow brighter the more the darkness is revealed to our startled eyes how interesting i remember meeting terence and he he had an extraordinary capacity for language he did and, and he he was like he was speaking um you know eloquently in very complex sentences it was it was a a, a dinner at rupert sheldrake's mm. um, um with um peter russell as well mm-hmm. so it was quite a threesome to have there i imagine yeah yeah and then I, finally I, um finally dean is there any advice you'd give your younger self from your position that you're in now i i i note that we're both um born in the same year and my birthday's coming up at the end of next week and you've had yours mm-hmm. already so mm-hmm. uh, it's a time to reflect i think when you get to uh, 70 yeah what well, what would i have done differently uh, i probably would have told my younger self to be more confident as a, a strong introvert uh, i always found uh, it it to be draining in social situations and so it was much easier to just simply pull back from it so my confidence socially was not at all that great i don't think this is that unusual for younger introverts of any type but it it really does come down to a matter of even if you're faking it as a younger person you can you learn how to behave in a social situation even if you're inter, introvert i mean you just take a while to recharge your battery afterwards that's what i still do right so i've given tons of interviews and talks 
And it, it is draining to do that because I, I would prefer not to, but you learn skills after a while and you say, well, it's actually not as scary as you thought it was. That said, I still don't go to, to large events with tons of people in them. I mean, this has nothing to do with the pandemic. It has to do with simply the, the I feel like an energy drain by being around a lot of people. So when I go to a conference and I give a talk, I disappear between giving a talk and that I don't want to hang around and talk to a lot of people. It's just, I feel exhausted by that. Well, thank you very much, Dean. I hope we haven't drained you too much on imaginal no. inspirations. And thank you for sharing your insights and uh, some fascinating stories about your life. Thank you.